This episode is the largest technical leap you will ever see in a podcast generation. You can listen anywhere, bedroom, kitchen, bathroom. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we talk about Xbox. Did you know they still make those things? Like a literal box with an X on it? But how much longer are they going to keep doing that? And should they still be doing that? I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And hello. 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 How are you guys? It's us again. Here we are. We made it back. Yes. Back around the three-sided table at which we sit once a week. It's it's a triangle. It's beautiful. We Mm -hmm. got our wrist in the corner. And uh, before we get into it, I simply got to give the hat tip to Maximum Fun. It's it's our podcasting network, and I love them so much. And, you know, couldn't do it without them because we're listener supported. And that means that if you want to be a part of it, be a part of it, you'd go to <laughs> MaximumFun.org slash join, and you would be one of our supporters who gets a monthly bonus episode from us and also bonus content from other shows. But we're talking about Triple Click right now. And what's more Triple Click than Marty Scorsese, which is sure, the bonus you know? <laughs> episode that we're going to get put out this month. We are going to watch Goodfellas, Casino, and The Wolf of Wall Street. And we're going to spill the beans about all three of those movies and probably talk about some other Scorsese classics mm. along the way. But we're definitely going to watch those three and talk about them as our bonus up. But we've also got a big backlog in there of other bonus episodes if you become a member. And they're they're really running the gamut. We talked about Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, Baldur's Gate 3. I'm sure we'll talk about other popular games this year. You might <laughs> imagine we'll spill the beans about some of those in the coming months. So MaximumFun.org slash join is the place to go to become part of all of that. All right, Jason, what are we talking about today? This week we're talking about Xbox, and uh, that is uh, not a way, a a derogatory way of referring to uh, a former partner. It is, in (laughs) fact, a video game console. Um, So the Xbox has had an interesting last few weeks. I don't know if you guys have been paying close attention, but it started, it really started last month when they suddenly said, hey, we're laying off 1,900 people, mostly in Activision Blizzard, the company we just purchased for $69 million. So that was step one. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, rumors started circulating about Xbox potentially bringing their games to other platforms, including some heavy hitters like Starfield and Indiana Jones. And so all of their games had already been on Xbox and PC. This was them potentially bringing their stuff to the rival PlayStation, dun-dun-dun, which <laughs> kind of inflamed uh, console warfare everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Old school style. Well, yeah, like really. In, in mean, a way that the, I feel like I haven't seen in years. People were getting angry on the internet about Xbox versus PlayStation again. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it depends. I mean, you can see it if you know where to look. It's always there. It's always kind <laughs> it of is, like yeah, an it's, undercurrent. It's seething. But yes, like but lava. Maddie, to your point, <laughs> I think it kind of, <laughs> it, really, it really kind of surfaced in a yeah. way that we hadn't seen in a long time. And so Xbox responded to this by doing 
um, uh, a video podcast where our old pal Tina Amini interviewed Phil Spencer and two of his execs, his right hand man mm-hmm. and woman, Sarah Bond and Matt Booty. And they essentially said uh, much new about much to do about nothing. They said we're bringing four games to other platforms. They didn't say what they were, but uh, we all kind of know what they are. It's Hi-Fi Rush, it's Pentiment, it's Sea of Thieves, and it's Grounded. And they uh, essentially were like, chill, like, this isn't a huge deal. These are kind of old games, they're service games. Maybe we'll bring more in the future. Who knows? Let's mm-hmm. see what happens. And um, Tina asked about Starfield and Indiana Jones. She did. And, and Phil said no. Phil very specifically <laughs> said no. So part of this is a story about journalism, about rumors going a little too far, or I guess kind of maybe not journalism since a lot of this is coming from the kind of the insider world but first well, things first let's talk about the journalism angle of this story. well the reason i say that is just because that's what the people want to know well the, the reason i say that is because the rumors just kind of like were flying hot and heavy and that's what mm. created all this in the first place but i want to talk about the business strategy i think that's what's really interesting here because we are now looking at 10 plus years of xbox kind of Walking in a rakes. I mean, they've been in third place in this console kind of battle for since since the Xbox 360 era, and there's a lot to kind of unpack there. Uh, all starting with the Don Matrick era. So let's get into that. Um, Kirk, I want to start with you because you and I were kind of we were we were in the trenches. It was our first couple of years at Kotaku when the Xbox One was revealed and then the disastrous PR strategy started unfolding and they started being like it's online only no it's not online only yes it is and then after that kind of messaging snafu they then fully backtracked and were like actually no we're not doing this and it was kind of this first step of this kind of disastrous era for them do you remember that do you have any fond memories of that time (laughs) I do remember it it's a pretty vivid memory because it was the first time that I as a reporter was uh, faced with a technology company introducing a product that I did not understand, that it did not seem like people would want, and telling us that people would want it, and having to sort of reconcile those two things. Okay, I know that I think this seems ridiculous. The Connect, which was this camera oh God, voice yeah. activation device, which was attached to the Xbox One and had been released earlier for the Xbox 360 as a mm-hmm. sort of optional peripheral, yeah, was now for integral. Just Dance and so on. Yeah, sure. That it was now integral to the. Uh, to the whole product, because the idea was that the Xbox One was this one unifying device for your living room. So you would run your cable box through the Xbox One. Um, I say this and I'm kind of going over the specs for the Xbox One. I'm realizing that some of our listeners (laughs) probably don't even know this because it was long ago. It had the HDMI in and out port, which was truly They're probably like, what's a cable box? What are you talking about? Like our younger listeners aren't even going to know what (laughs) you're saying right now. Like how complicated it used to be to watch television. It wasn't as easy as it is now. I mean, I don't know. It's pretty complicated to watch television now, but that's (laughs) That's a reasons (laughs) conversation. So you would run your cable box into the Xbox One and it would become kind of like a TiVo or whatever if, you know, any kind of those uh, intermediary steps and it would let you watch TV and then really seamlessly switch to 
gaming. And it was sort of like Microsoft repositioning themselves as an entertainment, mm. uh, just a more general entertainment company. This doesn't sound so controversial now, though, does it? That's what's interesting well, about it. Well, they, they really banked on TV still being a thing. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, and if you remember, they had games that were coming out at the time, like Quantum Break, the Remedy game, the Lost Remedy game, which had a TV show within it starring uh-huh. major TV stars, and you would <laughs> yeah. watch the TV show while playing the game. The idea being that this sort of fits aesthetically with the idea of the Xbox One being this device that goes back and forth between live action mm-hmm. television and video games. Pan. Not just and a game, just, yeah. a remedy game, a game by the makers of Alan Wake 2. And yeah, Control it's the, and, the, the mm-hmm. lost remedy game because Microsoft yeah. still owns it, and so remedy can't make it again. Yeah, but the controversial thing, Maddie, was not this stuff. The controversial yeah. thing was that it was online only and required mm-hmm. you to like put in discs and had licensing attached to discs. It was this convoluted system. Yes, it was kind of all of a piece. I mean, and and that's to bring it back to this idea of a tech company telling you that something is going to be amazing and you thinking, I don't understand, I don't want this, I think this sucks, which yep. obviously we've recently had that experience with crypto and the blockchain where it was the same feeling where they're like, this is amazing. And I'm like, I don't understand it. <laughs> so this was the first time I really remember feeling that way and thinking this Sucks, yeah. <laughs> I think, and it was all tied in with that—the idea that that's what I that people wanted a console that could do that. The idea that online only was something that everyone was totally fine with. Yeah. The idea that like discs and games were just sort of secondary, which was largely a messaging thing, but it really was this feeling that the Xbox One didn't care as much about games. And then in the console wars of it all, the fact that Sony was out there saying, "No, we're just going to make a game console that plays video for games. gamers." Well, so they did a crazy thing. So, okay, so one thing that's an important piece of context to what Kirk just explained is that this was an era where, first of all, analysts all thought the consoles were dead. 2012, 2013, there was this yeah. belief that the console was going away. Right. This was post-mobile. There was also the biggest concern in the video game industry at that point, which seems like totally quaint now, was used games because GameStop was making a ton of money off of <laughs> selling rec- like selling used copies of games to people and... And the game publishers would not see a dime every time a used game was sold. That, of course, is not relevant today. And GameSpot, GameStop is like, man, I just passed one in the mall yesterday and it is bleak. Yeah. But uh, back then it was. And so the reason to do this whole kind of like this console has to be connected to the Internet every few hours, every 24 hours or whatever. And your discs have licenses attached and you can't just give them around. That was mm-hmm. like the most controversial part of this because people were like, what the hell? Like if I buy a game, I want to be able to own my game game and share it with my friends and do whatever I want with my game. And so Sony came out and they really, they did this iconic thing that essentially like won them that generation in a single video. At E3 2013, they, at their Sony presentation, they play this video that is like, this is how you share games on PS4. And it's uh, Adam Boys and Shuhei Yoshida, two of their execs at the time, just handing a game to one another. Yeah, like a physical thanks. Yeah, and he's like, thank you. To just embarrass, and Microsoft was just totally embarrassed. They did a total 180, or I guess you could say 360, um, <laughs> a month later and they totally backtracked on every single plan that they had and they were like you know what we're not doing this we're just making a console but the connect was still attached so they sold it for $500 instead of 400 which is where the PS4 came in and pretty much lost the generation then and there in terms of sales mm-hmm. and since then I mean we've seen a company in Microsoft that has like not only struggled to 
compete with um, Sony and Nintendo in terms of hardware sales um, and also reaching broader markets, Japan and all that stuff, but also has really struggled to create the kind of first party lineup that both Sony and Nintendo had. They just do not have the killer franchises like The Last of Us or like Zelda. And that has really been a struggle for them. Even their marquee franchise, Halo, has really suffered over the last few years in a way that none of those other big franchises have. And so, yeah, I mean, Maddie, do you think there's something in the... I know you're a big Gears fan and a big Halo fan. Do you think there's something in the Microsoft waters? (laughs) Yeah, what are they going to bring back, Gears? Do you think there's something... Like, what do you think it is that is holding Xbox back from, like, competing with Sony and Nintendo on those fronts? I mean, I I think the truth is they're not even trying anymore. And watching this video with Tina Amini, it's really clear that a lot of their messaging is about Game Pass now and about the idea of everyone plays, then we all win. Like, that's their little buzz phrase that they say now is the Mm -hmm. idea of having multiple places to play games and talking about that instead of what the games actually are. And between that and acquisitions, they also mentioned Minecraft as one of their big acquisitions early on and a big success for them, pretty inarguable. Not something that we think of as a, it's not, I mean, because it's not, it's not a first party Microsoft game, but they're, they're talking a lot about the acquisition game and also how easy it is to play Xbox games because those are kind of the two pillars that they have. I mean, I'm not sitting here. I'm not going to argue to you like, oh, the next Gears game is going to come out. It's going to be freaking amazing. There's nothing to indicate that right this very second. And I played Halo Infinite and uh, that was that, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, they have tried though. Like this strategy that you're talking about is a relatively recent thing where they're like, you know what? Screw it. We're, we're just putting everything everywhere. I mean, uh, and, and it turns out not to be everything, but like over the past 10 years or so, they've come out with franchise after franchise and none of them has been a hit on the level of their competitors. And that to me is really striking and says something about Microsoft as a whole and the way that they make games and the way that they organize their studios. And I don't know, I don't know what it is exactly, but so after the Xbox One debacle, Don Matrick, who was running the place, uh, got out of there. He was kind of uh, an out of touch guy that a lot of people were not big fans of. And this guy, Phil Spencer, comes in and takes over. And he is a lot more loved. He is really um, just internally people at Microsoft just rave about him. He is a really just kind of unanimously liked guy. Um, but over, under him, Microsoft has still not been able to come out with all his first person stu- uh, first party studios. And what they've done is they've snatched up a bunch of companies, to your mm-hmm. point, Maddie. Everything from like the limited integration studios, as they called, like Double Fine and Obsidian, which are kind of still doing their own thing, just yep. under the Microsoft banner, to them kind of creating their own studios to try to make really good first party games like 343 and like Playground, which is making a Fable game now and a whole bunch of others. And still none of those have been able to come up right. with like a killer franchise. We have games like everything from Rise in, in the early Xbox One eras to like Sunset Overdrive to like Quantum Break to um, games like, I don't know, ReCore that just never found an audience yeah. to games that are more recent that are like Starfield. Fable and Perfect Dark <laughs> and a bunch of other games in, in those in that kind of. Uh, uh, cadre that aren't even happening that are like were announced five years ago and are still in production so yeah we have kind of a messy a messy overall picture here yeah so I think that's something that's worth 
talking about along with Xbox is PC. Because for me, even before the Xbox One, the Xbox 360 was the console that was closer to a PC than the PlayStation 3 because it was, I think, easier to make games for it. There were just a lot more games on Xbox 360 that were also on PC. Not Microsoft-exclusive games, but games that were only on Xbox 360 for a console and weren't on PlayStation 3. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of associated the Xbox brand with PC gaming because Microsoft has always kind of had one foot in that world. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, they I don't remember exactly when this was, they started releasing every single first party game also on PC mm-hmm. and Game Pass is also on PC. Yep. And all of this created a world that I would say is far better for people who like playing games, even while it is maybe a disadvantage in the kind of console competition and the hardware sales competition that we're talking about. So we're talking about Microsoft making all these mistakes or like tactical blunders, but a lot of those so-called mistakes are also things that make it easier for someone like me who doesn't actually play games on Xbox to play every game I want to play, which is actually really great. I think it's so cool that I could play Hi-Fi Rush on PC and on Steam Deck. It was on Steam. It was like no problem to play it. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. And it's cool that now that game is apparently going to come to PlayStation as well. And then we're seeing on the flip side, Sony releasing Helldivers 2 on PC and on PS5 at the same time and allowing for crossplay. And it's this huge success for them. And it's so cool that people can play it both ways. So I don't know. I feel like Microsoft was ahead of the game on something that's really cool for players, even if it's led to some... You know, it's led to some fair questions about why someone might buy an Xbox instead of just getting a PC and like a Nintendo Switch or whatever. Yeah, I think that's the point. Well, so yeah, that's the the rub of it, right? Like the idea of Xbox, of Microsoft releasing all their games on all the platforms is objectively good for players. Like exclusives are very bad for the player because they have to spend hundreds of dollars on another piece of hardware to get those games. If you think, if you believe in like player first, whatever, consumer first, uh, Nintendo and PlayStation should not be keeping games to themselves. Even saying consumer first is kind of loaded. Like, I think it's cool to imagine a world without platforms where everyone can just play every game. But but we're, the three of us are, but but Kirk, the three of us are coming at this from a privileged position of being able to afford high-end gaming PCs and being able to generally play what we want whenever Mm -hmm. we want. Whereas there are a lot of people out there who can only afford to spend maybe a couple hundred bucks on an Xbox Series S, which is kind of the entry-level machine. And those people are looking at this as like, hey, first of all, is Microsoft not going to make hardware anymore? Like, what am I going to do? Second of all, uh, am I not getting the best experiences anymore because I bought this Xbox? Like, to some extent, uh, I think there there is definitely definitely a level here of people who are just like, I'm mad because games are coming to PlayStation that, and I want them to Wait be- a minute, though. But if those people feel that way, it's Sony's fault that they feel that way because Sony won't let The Last of Us be played on an Xbox. If Microsoft starts putting their games on every platform... Like- oh, I know. I... Uh- in in no world is this a, a who's to blame or like what? <laughs> no, but let's get down to it. Let's finally figure out who's to blame. Like we are talking. <laughs> let, let me be very clear. When it when it comes to exclusives, the people making their games exclusive, that is an objectively bad decision for players. Like players all suffer when a, co- a company says no, you can only play our game on that console. Like that is an exclusively profit minded decision. Mm-hmm. I guess there's some technical advantages because if you're a game maker and you only have to make right for if one you're a game console. maker and you only have to make 
games for a certain specification that helps you as a game maker so there are a couple advantages there but from a, a player's point of view that is objectively bad when the exclusive exists so i guess i'm reacting to you painting a picture where a player feels bad about exclusivity going away which was the picture you were painting with the xbox person who's like wait a minute right well so it's it's less that exclusivity is going away and more what to extrapolate from there because if you see exclusivity going away then you say hey is microsoft just giving up on consoles what's going on there and that would be the concern if you're an xbox player but Mm -hmm. yes i mean you also have this situation where like like for the three of us and i think for a lot of people out there it would be ideal for everything to be like pc and really i mean if if microsoft I said this years and years ago on, on our podcast many years ago. Uh, if Microsoft really wanted to compete, what they should do is create a living room PC that is can be has an open garden unless you hook up to whatever. Mm. Um, and, and that would be, that would, man, if you had like an entry-level PC. Yeah, sure, make a <laughs> sure. console version. I mean, this goes beyond PC because now what they're talking about is putting their games on other platforms. Like if you can play Hi-Fi Rush on the Nintendo that's Switch. That's what I was getting you can, at, yes. You know, like that's, that's just great. Like that means you don't have to be in a privileged position and have an expensive PC. You can just buy a Switch and still play a bunch of games from all different kinds of game developers. That's great. Yeah, it's 100% good news, but if you're the Xbox player out there who's like, God damn it, like I spent $300 on my Xbox and now I'm like, feel like I, it was a waste of money because there's nothing else I can get here that I could, like everything I can get here, I could get on other things, then you are right. probably a little bummed. Well, and, and you might also be thinking, if I can play Xbox games on a PlayStation, but I can't play PlayStation games on Xbox, then why did I get an Xbox? Because... Those are apparently the games I can play, quote unquote, anywhere or they're going to be. Right. I mean, that's what you're getting. at. Yeah, I guess the nice thing about this is that they're telling people, well, for now, there's still going to be games that you can only play on console on Xbox. And then if you did buy an Xbox, you have, you know, they're going to be new consoles in four or five years. And by then, maybe the landscape will look different and you can make a different decision by then. So it, it seems like you you'll still have some time to enjoy having things that make your Xbox feel special. And then when it's time to make a new decision, it could be a much easier decision to make because you can just get, I don't know, one console that can play everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm certain it won't be that great, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't we don't know yet. We don't know what this roadmap, yeah. roadmap is going to look like ultimately. But I, I think it's worth noting here that this is a company that has now spent 10 years just kind of not only just like stepping on rakes, but like totally just not knowing where it's going while stepping on those rakes. And we've seen the strategies just kind of like shifting in all sorts of different ways over the last few years. Now, this is just kind of the latest milestone in it. I think Phil Spencer has always made it clear that he wants games that can be played anywhere. But at the same time, he's also said like, we're going we're gonna to have exclusives every three months for you Xbox fans and hasn't quite delivered on that stuff. Yeah. Um, My understanding is that what happened more recently within the past couple of years, I'm not sure exactly when, is a pressure from above, 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 like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella level to uh, to look at that revenue, to look at those P&Ls, to like say, hey, like we, we need to make more money off of this thing, which I think is a, a, the main reason that we are now entering a world where like Microsoft wants to get a few mil- million more Sea of Thieves players from other consoles. Yeah. Also, the first party question that you asked at the outset, Jason, is probably going to haunt me for the rest of this show. Like in my head, I've just been going through all the first party Xbox games and being like, wow, no, no, I'm not really. Hmm. uh, That's not uh, that didn't really work out. Like and I kind of just tossed off Starfield. But just the fact that at the outset of the call, 
or with Tina Amini, that podcast, I shouldn't call it a call. It was like a call, <laughs> the call with <laughs> Tina Amini. They were like, don't worry, Starfield's still going to be exclusive. I'm like, does anyone care about that? Like, <laughs> are, that was pretty are, there, are there people? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, not in, not yeah. even in a way to diss that, but like, have people just been clamoring to play that on another platform? I'm not sure. And also, I feel like even Xbox's own messaging on this has changed so much that it was super weird to kind of go back to console wars rhetoric again in this conversation because it's been a while, like many months since I've heard the full phrase Xbox Game Pass, most of their marketing says Game Pass now because they mm. want you to remember that you can play it on PC as well. And they didn't want players to be confused about that. And there's tons of games that are available on both your PC and your Xbox. And they want you to install Game Pass and the Xbox little toolbar in both places and just have cross save and cross play with your friends who have it on another platform. That's what they want you to be feeling like. And to hear them saying the phrase Xbox game pass again, and talking about the Xbox ecosystem, like it's been ages since I had any PR or conversation, even with a Microsoft person that used those phrases, those have been kind of melted away in favor of this idea that the idea the Xbox identity doesn't matter so much as the fact that we have so many games and their big announcement was Diablo four is going to be on game pass. It's not right. a first party game. Mm. <laughs> it is a great game. It's a fun game to play with your friends, but it's not an Xbox game. You have to wonder the Activision Blizzard acquisition is such a weird part of this whole strategy. They spend right? so much money on that. Yeah. Um, first of all, the amount they spend on a $69 million looks a lot different today than it did two years ago where interest rates were like at the bottom of the, the possible at the bottom of the chart. Um, second of all, how does this acquisition fit into their strategy at all? I mean, they've talked about like mobile games and wanting to get more into the mobile space, which makes sense if you're a gaming company, but like, how does that fit into what you were trying to do with all the rest of your branches? Are you really just, you just want Candy Crush and like, that's, mm -hmm. that's what you're going for here. None of it really makes sense to me. Yeah. I wonder if they kind of want a Fortnite. I mean, a game that's just cross-platform on just about every single platform allows for cross-play is not really branded super heavily to, in Fortnite's case, Epic, but just a game that is so ubiquitous and very profitable that they can just make money off of it purely as a software company. Mm. Well, everyone wants a Fortnite. And if anyone's <laughs> going to make something like that, Blizzard could be a company that would make it and also has several games that at least function in that realm. So I could, I, that, it makes sense in that way. Right. Me. I mean, Diablo, it's it's not a Fortnite per se, but it's it's a big, fun, multiplayer game yeah. that you can chat with your friends on, on voice chat while you're playing it. That part of it very much reminds me of a Fortnite or a Roblox in that it's as much a social platform as it is a game. But also, follow-up question, should we be referring to Diablo as a first-party Xbox game now? Like, I just said that it wasn't, but Maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a win. And if you don't have any good first party games, the solve is buy them. <laughs> and then you do. Well, you know, and that kind of ties in with what you were saying, Maddie, about how Xbox as a brand is not a super like they're not leaning on it super hard right now because Bethesda is a really strong brand and a brand that people associate with good games, machine games who are making that Indiana Jones game. People right. associate the, them with fun single player games. They're like Naughty Dog. They're like, yep. uh, you know, Insomniac, these studios that Sony 
uh, owns or bought and, you know, just let's speak for themselves because those brands are really strong. So I could see that continuing. I mean, I'm certain that's going to continue with Blizzard. Blizzard is one of the strongest brands in all of video games. No, 100%. I mean, yes, Blizzard is is up there um, and World of Warcraft still prints money. Um, yeah. Did you guys know that World of Warcraft Classic, the servers that are just kind of recreating the old stuff, is like... As big or almost as big as the modern uh, entries. Yeah. I didn't know that because I think you talk about it in your book. <laughs> oh, I do. It's, it's pretty wild. It's like that thing is, is printing money. Yeah, I didn't know it was so successful. And obviously Call of Duty is big. I, I, I have no, I mean, the argument I'm making is not necessarily that these guys aren't big, heavy hitters. Like they bought a bunch of hits. I was at an Xbox party um, at, at, I think it was the Game Awards a few months ago and they had a big banner that was like showing, it was like a big ABK mixer and it was like uh, the Candy Crush person next to Diablo, next to Master Chief, next sure. to like some other like uh, like Starfield dude or something like that. It was pretty wild to see. Um, yeah. But yes, I mean, that uh, having all of that for sure makes sense if you want to make the next Smash Brothers. Like I get having all of those IPs <laughs> smashed or together. Or Fortnite. We call um, those Fortnites now, Jason. Yeah, right? Create, yeah. Create, a fort- create your Battle Royale metaverse. Yeah. They did say when they were buying... ABK, they did say, like, uh, this is our metaverse play, but <laughs> that was 2022. Again, different time. That's how uh, that's how long ago oh it God, was. Yeah. It was when the metaverse was still a relevant thing that people talked about. Yeah. I mean, also, we don't feel as much anxiety about the idea of something being disc-free now. Like, I, I just feel like that conversation has completely changed. And it's not just because GameStop isn't as much of a thing anymore. I think it's just that internet access has continued to grow around the world. It's still not even close to where I think it should be for Phil Spencer's dream to be fully realized. And I think that everyone in reality knows that. But in marketing land, we have to pretend that's not the case and that going mm. totally online for console is, is a great business move no matter what. But it is interesting to look back on those arguments from 10 years ago that we were talking about where people were like, oh, but I can't share games anymore. We're already in that reality. I already purchase a license to a game and I can't share it with anyone. I already don't own anything anymore. That's just my life now. Things go on Game Pass and they go away. I don't own anything on Game Pass. I can install Yakuza, but I better beat it before they take it away. Like that's that's just how it works. Well, that's that's a different. Well, yeah. But I, my point is, I don't is own anything. Game Pass, but um, yeah, I mean, timing is everything. They miss. They came out uh, with a with a digital console too early, in the same way that um, games that tried to do battle royale a couple of years before Fortnite uh, missed the boat on that. In the same way that I think I just saw stories today that like other people were trying to do similar things to Helldivers 2 and that got cancelled and that didn't work out and Helldivers reigns supreme. I mean, sometimes all you need is timing and business. But um, I do want to say, I I think that, like, in general, this idea of putting your games on everything as a game company is, like, something that is net beneficial. It, like, benefits more people than not. I just think that uh, when you do that, it's tough to do that and also make your own hardware because so much of the current model for selling hardware lies upon you can buy you have to buy this closed machine because you can get games on it that you can't get anywhere else and it's very hard to imagine them not just consistently underselling the xbox if they're going to continue to do that while at the same time they're still releasing all their games on pc releasing some of their games potentially on switch and playstation like that strategy is part of what doesn't make sense to me for xbox Mm mm-hmm 
You don't think they just make money in such a different way now that the fact that they're getting away from hardware isn't as much of a concern for them. And it is, of course, a concern for the 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 people on the internet who come forward in times like this and get very anxious about like, oh, does it even mean anything to own an Xbox anymore? And what are they going to stop making consoles then and just become a software company? Like those are the kinds of kind of fearful arguments that Phil Spencer had to address right off the top and be like, don't worry, there's still Xbox games. We're still going to make another Xbox console. But that probably isn't where they're making most of their money now, right? I mean, it's probably all Game Pass. Right. I mean, I guess we don't know. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine a world where the next Xbox or where a future Xbox is essentially that gaming PC that we were describing earlier. It's a place you log into. Right. And it's a piece of hard. Well, no, I mean, it's a piece of hardware that plugs into your TV, but it just play. It is basically a PC and all the games on it are also on PC. And it's just for people who want something easier to use than a gaming PC and, you know, like want that device. And it's just one option among many, just sort of like TVs or anything else. And I don't know, I, I could see that. And given what you're saying, Maddie, and I think that that could well be true, that there's not they're not making a ton of money on hardware anyways. It's just something that they make in addition to all the software they're making, which is where they're making most of their money. But to be clear, it's not that they're not making a ton of money on hardware. They're actively losing money on every piece of hardware they sell. Yeah, yeah. so like even more of a reason. <laughs> um, and this has been the case. They sell, they sell Xboxes at a loss, and this has been the case for a while. I think Sony also sells PlayStations at a loss, I believe. Yeah, the switch right. is, is is profitable but um, those machines are worth being sold at a loss because Xbox therefore can sell you games on their store and not have to pay a 30% cut to whatever store they're selling on and presumably you'll buy enough software to justify that or you'll just buy enough of their software or they, they'll take a cut of 30% cut of, of all the other games that are being sold there so for them right. it's worth it but at, at what point does it become not worth it and I think that's a viable question and that's the reason to look at the console sales, right? Like, it's not... In, the only person to whom it matters that PlayStation is outselling Xbox 2 to 1 are really... The only people that number actually matters to are the console warriors. Like, who cares what the numbers look like? The proportion might not matter, but if one console is lagging so far behind that the business starts not making sense anymore, then people at the Satya Nadella and Amy Hood level start to wonder, like, why are we still making consoles? And the less, the more that Microsoft moves away from exclusives, the fewer units are going to sell unless they find some other like useful gimmick. And Xbox Game Pass was in theory like a good way to do that, but the fact that they put it on P- that they have it on PC as well and and p- could potentially put it on other platforms like if there's really no selling point to the hardware, then why are you selling the hardware? That's that's the thing I don't understand. And I'm not saying this as a like I I wish that Microsoft would put exclusives on their hardware mm-hmm. sort of thing. In fact, I think like I said before, I I think the the way for them to go that is most beneficial to everybody is to release living room PCs because what if, those I think would sell well and be open to everybody and just like check all the boxes that they're trying to hit here. Yeah. Let me throw this out there. What if Microsoft released a Steam Deck style handheld gaming PC? Because the Steam Deck has proved to be pretty popular and I could mm-hmm. see Microsoft making a pretty great device. Like their controller is killer. They clearly have good 
um, engineers. Yeah, and Sony's putting out that like weird PS5 handheld. Well, that's like a streaming device, right? Yeah, if they put out something that was even... that was better than that. Well, I just mean like the handheld. The handheld trend is in the air. Everyone's it talking is. about handhelds. They're it out is. there. Well, so the the trick to that would need to be open garden, and that's the thing where I really yeah. just can't understand Microsoft's strategy. Like, look, if you're putting your games on everything, if you're all about like platforms and not hardware anymore you want to be on everything fine great but that's a great it. strategy do it for real. But yeah do it for real and open no, up your box because people will get mad jason well no you gotta no, have no, their cake and eat no, it too hold on what, many what i'm saying <laughs> is you take your box and you say hey we're gonna let you crack this thing open and put steam on it and put whatever you want on it which maybe putting steam on it maybe that doesn't make sense for them because they suddenly lose their 30 percent cut from the store on there but if you open it up to people it will be so much more appealing as a hardware device and that could be the the gimmick that you have that could be the selling point that you have over the playstation and over the switch since you're not doing exclusives anymore Mm-hmm. Right, and Microsoft has the infrastructure in place for this, given that they make the dominant previous generation operating system in Windows. Yeah, like, why wouldn't you do a console's Windows? Th- that was an operating system before iOS, and you it's know true. all of these closed operating systems where you know only Apple can sell things through iOS. Yeah. Microsoft, I mean, you run Steam through Windows right now. Like it's that true. is a Microsoft Probably operating system, unless you use. Or Windows. I mean, I meant you as in the two of you, all three of us do. Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine? I mean, what if they do a, con- uh, a handheld Steam Deck thing that lets you run Windows on it, and so it's kind yeah. of an open machine instead of like. Uh, you must go through our Xbox operating system and play by our I mean, rules in here. I would like that. <laughs> That's already been the defining attribute of the Steam Deck competitors that don't use Proton and, and run Windows instead. Mm-hmm. They just haven't. They're not quite as good as the Steam Deck in other right. ways. Yeah, yeah it would need to be. It's a little easier, and I don't. I don't have to like read extensive <laughs> how-to documentation on trying to get Chiaki to work on my freaking Steam. Deck. The file system isn't an, a labyrinth of madness. <laughs> I would actually really appreciate if the Xbox yeah. bigwigs would go ahead and put out something that made it a little easier for me to just you know play PlayStation games on their console. Yeah, mm. open up the freaking box open up the garden whatever medical yeah, we're doing that might do it because uh, like I, it's hard to imagine i mean what else is the selling point like last this last generation with the xbox series x they tried to make their selling point that this is the most powerful hardware yes. and i believe i said at the time that doesn't mean anything right now <laughs> because you don't have a game that can take advantage well, of it well and then you look at the switch with tears of the kingdom the most right. advanced and exciting well, game at- of all time running on this <laughs> but ancient. have you seen what the xbox can bench and what it can deadlift right <laughs> Yeah, it can, it can deadlift 380. It's really impressive. How vascular is your console? It's got so many, so it's many veins. So strong, <laughs> so veiny, so strong, um, you guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, we're we're like in this world where Xbox. So Xbox said like, hey, we have the most pop- powerful console. Three years and three months later, uh, that means nothing. Like I said at the time, it mean meant nothing then. It means nothing it means now. Something Nobody. Something when is the last time you saw a game that was like running significantly better on the? Xbox than it was on the PlayStation. Like, that's not happening. And we're not in a world where that matters at all. So they really need to, I mean, can you guys think of any other selling points or like, why would they make a console? I mean, no, because I feel like the people who want the quote unquote most powerful thing are just going to build a PC or buy a PC and they can still play Xbox games on there. 
So there yep. you go. 100%. And so you're, if you're trying to mar market to the hardware <laughs> enthusiasts, you've already lost them because they can just go ahead and, and buy something extremely powerful that isn't necessarily an Xbox, but can still play Xbox games. So even talking about hardware, which they do, they did have a line in the interview with Tina about, oh, but our next Xbox in 2025 yeah, or whatever was, there's like a, a quote they hardware. said where they were like, that one's going to be really powerful it's gonna <laughs> knock your socks off it's, they they leaned on it again just the classic console manufacturer line of well the next the next generation you just won't believe it your eyes Maddie, are gonna did melt. they say they didn't say 2025 right no, you they just didn't. i made that, that up okay. but yeah it, i think yeah i have no idea that, when it's coming yeah. it'll it'll be on, we'll be on another planet by then and, and we'll all be like <laughs> you know strapped into vr headsets and it'll be more powerful than anything we can possibly imagine and so this is the the core tension right it's this paradox of like we want you to play games on everything but we also want to sell you the most powerful console and we want you to play games on there too and you need it to play games except you don't because we're except also giving them to you on every other they're platform they're all on pc and we're going to sell you this thing for 500 bucks which for which you could just get a steam deck and play our games on there and Anyway, it just none of this makes sense to me uh, as a as a business strategy. Um, so again, we're we're entering now like eleven years of I don't want to say incompetence, but certainly business questions to their to their mm -hmm. business. Weird um, messaging, and I, I do think it's a product weird. of the fact that we all grew up in the console wars, and that's what Phil Spencer's still negotiating in the marketing messaging he has to do every day. Like, he has to deal with this. <laughs> like, he had to do this interview earlier than his original plan because people were freaking out on the Internet so hard. Like, that's why yeah. he talked to everyone. That's wild. That still matters to him. It's a question that we don't really get all the data, uh, get enough data to answer. But basically the question of, is it better to have as many people as possible playing a game? Yes. Or is it better to res to restrict the number of people playing the game in order to incentivize them to buy our hardware and then all the store and our, and our percentage? Well, from a business perspective, yes, Kirk, to your point, we don't have all of the data and the opacity of these game companies is a problem. Right. Even the ones that are publicly traded can just kind of bury some of their stuff in a line on, on their on their earnings sheet. And so you can see like some percent of like how their Xbox division performs compared to the overall business, but you don't need to see the numbers of the hardware and the software and stuff. But yes, that's a good question, right? Like would it would it for PlayStation, would it make would they make more money selling The Last of Us on all all of their on every platform or does it make more money for it to bring in right. new users right. into the PlayStation system that is a good question it is somewhat a question that you know they require more data in order to answer because they're just starting to do it i mean helldivers is this very interesting example of this where it's the first time sony has done day and date on ps5 and steam and it's this crashing success obviously it's just one data point but for especially that kind of game for like an ongoing online service game you totally can see how it it could work out and then as games like that actually are released and they get data back on it you can see them moving more in that direction if it winds up you know if it's still is that successful, you know, the next time they do it and the next time someone tries this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, part of it also is kind of appealing to a certain type of person and looking at your target demographic. In Sony's case, they're very much like, we want this to be known as the place for these big cinematic open world action adventure narrative stuff. And so that stuff is always going to be exclusive to the PlayStation first and then maybe come to PC yeah. later, mm -hmm. uh, as many of their games and have. 
maybe even HBO later. Yeah, and then coming to TV. As opposed to Helldivers 2, <laughs> which Helldivers 2 is more of like a, this is an online yep. shooter thing. We want people, as many people as possible to, to be playing with their friends on it. It makes a lot more sense to release mm-hmm. that day and day on PC. Um, so it's very much about the brand of the console and the Nintendo has similar stuff where it's like we have these games that are that are that have a certain Nintendo feel, Genase Qua and, and you can only play yeah, them on I the mean, Switch. Well, the Nintendo is like the kings of exclusivity and everyone just puts up with that. Like it's so well, funny they, to even have them in the conversation because it's like, yeah. well, where else are you gonna play Mario? It's it's, it's just it's as it's open and shut to such an extent, you know? Well and they're, yeah, they're just so distinct in terms of their hardware limitations, in terms of the games that they make that Sony and Microsoft have been just ever pulling closer to one another by their gravitational pull because yeah, jousting. They forever. make consoles that are so similar in terms of hardware. They run so many of the same games that it just becomes harder and harder to not be like, why aren't they both just? Why don't they just kiss? Like you know, <laughs> basically because they're so close. Nintendo has kind of always been just over at another part of the playground because their hardware is so different. Their whole stable of games are so different. Definition of success is different. Yeah, I mean. From a business perspective, in Microsoft and Sony, we're talking about two companies that are struggling. In fact, Sony's Sony just came out with some recent earnings report, and uh, their stock took a, a big hit because they missed their expectations on PS5 sales. Their profit margins are not where they need to be. Basically, they're not making the type of money that their investors are expecting. Same same situation. As and they Microsoft. just announced right that they don't have any major games coming out for a very long Correct. time as well, so, which could not have made anybody happy. Mm-hmm. Or at least anybody operating according to shareholder logic. Yeah, God, yeah. So, so that and and with them specifically, it's a problem of budgets, right? Their games are costing hundreds of millions of dollars to make, and they are not seeing the kind of returns that they need to because nothing is going to see the kind of returns that you need to, yeah. except GTA, to deliver on that. I know. Where, and I Nintendo mean, just announced, even though there absurd. are rumors now that Nintendo is delaying the Switch Two to 2025, which should be bad news for all of our predictions. Um, Nintendo is like the richest <laughs> yeah. company in Japan, so Nintendo is is still killing it, and the Switch is is like uh, gonna outsell sell the PS2 potentially this year and become the most uh, the biggest console ever. Yeah, and yet, but we also live in a world where like no one could get a PS5 at first because they were so coveted, and yet years later, well, like, well no, that was supply that was supply chain. chain but, stuff, but, yeah. but it's just so weird that we live in a world where I feel like, oh, so PS5s are so cool and so expensive, and now a lot of people have one finally, and yet I, I'm still being told that Sony is struggling. Like, I do understand the math there and how we got here, but it's just so weird, you know? Well, like, they had not, to be I'm, successful beyond, 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 beyond in order for yeah, it to work. I mean, it's an expensive console that runs expensive to make games. The, the PS5 is not a massive success, despite the, the it being hard to get. It, right. is, it is selling a pretty much the same clip, maybe even a little slower than the PS4. It is not like that. That narrative is because of the supply chains, 100%. It's not because so many people want it. Yeah, them. and the narrative doesn't match up with the fact that they would have had to outsell just absurdly beyond my imagination in order to make stockholders happy, I guess, because that's just how everything works if you aren't outperforming. 
Well, especially if you're making a new console that's incredibly expensive to make and you're making games for it that are incredibly expensive to make. Right. I mean, the thing to keep in mind here is that, like, as much as we can say, like, oh, shareholder expectations are crazy, they shouldn't expect infinite growth, which is all totally fair to argue. We're also talking about, yeah, we're also talking about budgets that have, like, quadrupled since since 10 years ago. So uh, there is a kind of, you do need growth to keep up with that. And really, the, someone needs to say, hey, we're putting an end to this. We're putting a cap on like our graphical fidelity right and like meanwhile the switch is in the background being like eh, maybe maybe we may or may not put out the switch too we're just gonna keep selling switches forever for years and years and years and you can still play animal crossing yeah (laughs) i mean the graphical arms race just participating in that is is kind of a, a a problem all right we're gonna take a break and then we will be back with xbox one more thing Have you ever wanted to know the sad lore behind Chuck E. Cheese's love of birthday parties? Or, my Saturday mornings are reserved for cartoons? Or, have you wanted to know how beloved virtual pet site Neopets fell into the hands of Scientologists? Or, how a former Mattel employee managed to grow Sega into a video game powerhouse? Join us, hosts Austin and Brenda, and learn all of these things and more at Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries, now on Maximum Fun. The following are real reenactments of pretend emergency calls. 911. My husband! It's my husband! Calm down, please. What about your husband? He, he loads the dishwasher wrong. Please help! Please help me! Where are you now, ma'am? At the kitchen table, I was with my dad. He mispronounced his words intentionally. There are plenty of podcasts on the hunt for justice, but only one podcast has the courage to take on the silly crimes. Judge John Hodgman, the only true crime podcast that won't leave you feeling sad and bad and scared for once. Only on MaximumFun.org. And we are back. Kirk, I think your one more thing is relevant to our discussion today. <laughs> it is. It is. My one more thing is Helldivers 2, one of the best video games I've played in a very long time. It came out of nowhere and totally rules. And I'm very excited to tell listeners and the two of you about it. Um, so, as I'm sure a lot of people know, just from headlines, this game, Helldivers 2, suddenly became the hottest thing since, uh, I don't know. I don't know, since Pal World? <laughs> yeah, since Pal World, yeah. It kind of has usurped Pal World in the video game headline generation <laughs> The hottest games. thing in three weeks. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's the new hotness. Uh, Helldivers is a sequel to a 2015 game that I notably wrote about and tried to tell the world to play back in 2015 with a headline that was based something along the lines of Helldivers 1 is basically Starship Troopers, the video game. And, uh, it, you know, Helldivers 2 is even more Starship Troopers, the video game, and is incredibly fun. So this is a online game playable with up to four people, pretty much a co-op multiplayer game. Um, that I would say feels a little like an extraction shooter, actually, even though it's PvE. You're not fighting against other players, but it is the thrill of going into dangerous territory and completing objectives and blowing shit up and then getting extracted and waiting for pickup and holding off the, uh, you know, the onslaught of the hordes so that you can get onto the ship and fly away. Uh, that's the kind of type of game it is. It's a third-person, over-the-shoulder shooter. But what makes it special is... Well, the vibe, the humor, the writing, and the world, that's part of it. Um, And part of it is actually how kind of hostile to the player it is in a lot of really amazing ways. And that's just kind of what I wanted to 
to mention about it here, since I, I'm guessing we'll probably talk about it more in the future. Definitely. Uh, this game is is very much styled after Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, this kind of ironic fascist world. It's called Super Earth that you are a citizen of. And uh, on Super Earth, they have managed democracy, which is like democracy, but it's a little more predictable. We manage the outcomes a little more. <laughs> and then, so it's if you've seen that Starship Troopers, it is very much the world of, would you, would you like to know more? Um, I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say blow them all to hell. Mm-hmm. It's very much like there are bug aliens out there in our colonies, and we're going to go kill them. And so you play as a meathead grunt called a helldiver, who is uh, extremely disposable soldiers sent by Super Earth's military from a giant battleship that you get to name one of a bunch of really amazing names. Mine is called the Queen of Wrath, but there are a lot of very funny ones like the, I don't even remember, the Patriarch of the Constitution or something. They can have very funny names. (laughs) So they're like destiny gun names. Uh, even sillier. It's all very, very silly. Like everyone is just yelling about democracy all the time. The tutorial in this game is hysterically funny. Um, so you go out with your ship and then you meet up with your friends. And what's going on in this game is a kind of ongoing war. There's a war front that is updated in real time according to everybody's game. And because this game is extremely popular, like that's been the ongoing narrative of it over the past week is that it's broken 400,000 concurrents on Steam. It's like about to crack the top five. We're recording this on Monday, so maybe by the time people are listening to this, it will have. It's been very hard to play it because the servers are just a total disaster. I have been able to play on and off, but it's been very, very frustrating. I will note that because I know a lot of people are very frustrated by it, Um, even though I'm going to mostly just focus on the game. I should note that. They say they're going to have a server fixed this week. I think probably by the time people are listening, it should be easier to play. But it has been pretty annoying. So anyways, you get with your friends, and then there's this battle map that you go over to. You can all four go up to the map and look at it together like a kind of G.I. Joe screen, which is sort of fun. And uh, you're all on the ship, you know, in the same space. And you pick a battle and, like, the war front is, like, it'll show, you know, percent liberated of this front. (laughs) And that's, like, some bug planet. And it's a little bit percent liberated. And each time you go into a mission, it moves the needle a little bit further. And then over time, new fronts are going to expand. Right now, you can either go fight bugs that look just like the bugs from Starship Troopers or robots that look just like the Terminator. (laughs) And, like, they're very different missions. Like, it's really fun how different they are. But those are the two fronts. And in the first game, there was a third kind of enemy they were called the Illuminate, and they were like an alien psychic species. So it's really the Zerg and ah. the Terran, and now the, then they're going to hopefully add the Protoss. So there's like, you'll get missives from Super Earth where it's like, a new front has opened up, or like, we've had to fall back from here, and you're following this real-time battle that everyone Fun. alongside you is fighting, which is very cool and something the first game did as well. So then you drop in with your, your three teammates, and it's very much the feeling of like a total war zone. There's like ships overhead. You're like on an empty battlefield, and and it's quiet, too quiet. And you kind of, you call in, you know, re- resupply and you start moving toward your objective. This game looks over the shoulder, like a, you know, over the shoulder shooter, uh, which is a change from the first game was kind of top down. Um, there's a, a lot of calling in stuff from orbit. So you're shooting just guns. You have a heavy gun, a light gun, a sidearm, typical kind of stuff. Um, you're very squishy. You can die very easily. But a lot of what you do are what are called stratagems. So you hold down the shoulder button, and then you have to input D-pad combinations for each stratagem. And this is something that Arrowhead Studios, this is a Swedish developer that made this, the first Helldivers. They made the Magicka games. They've been messing with this forever, and it's this great idea that I've really never seen in other games, but where you're under fire, 
and you're like, oh my god, I have to call in an airstrike, and you hold, you bring up the thing, and it's like, okay, down, down, right, and you're kind of looking while trying to not get shot, and then you have a little like grenade that you throw that then in a minute calls in a super intense airstrike. I remember this from the first game. So you can also call in, um, you know, more guns or like a big heavy gun. There aren't mech suits or anything. There were in the first game. I'm guessing they're going to add that kind of stuff or maybe even vehicles. And airstrikes are a huge part of this game. I played a lot last night with three friends and we were all on mic playing together. And like with four people, when you're going all in, we were fighting the robots and everyone is like calling in like cluster bomb strikes from planes that are flying overhead. And the game looks really amazing. I think the lighting is like beautiful. And so it's like the world is exploding. <laughs> You're shooting. Meanwhile, your character is screaming like, "Come get some democracy!" <laughs> like <laughs> blowing shit up, and you're everyone is constantly dying as well. So I mentioned the player unfriendly thing, and that's I guess the last thing or one of the last things I'll focus on here is that there are a lot of really cool frictions in this game. I think the gameplay is fantastic. The shooting feels really good, but there are all these things that make it a little harder to play. You're not actually very empowered in some ways, even though you're able to call down, you know, the wrath of God with a couple of D-pad button presses. So one thing is, for example, you're shooting your gun. If you just reload after shooting a few times, you throw out the magazine and all the bullets in it. So you can run out of ammo and you run out of ammo pretty regularly. And it's terrible when that happens and there's like 10 bugs coming at you and you're like, oh my God, I'm out of ammo. And you switch to your sidearm and you're trying to get away and it's very desperate. So you always have to be managing ammo and you have to think about how you use your guns. And all the weapons are like that. There are like rocket launchers that a friend can come and load for you. So you load them much more quickly. And like if a robot tank is coming at you, you need to like team up and do that. So there are these kind of, all of these tensions introduced or frictions, I guess, introduced to the game that make it really fun. There's also the fact that friendly fire is on. You're constantly killing one another in various ways because <laughs> these like airstrikes that you're calling in are ludicrous. Like you'll you'll call in like I don't even know some of the things that my friends were calling in. And you kind of you're like, "Okay, everyone, I'm calling in an airstrike." But it's happening so fast that you're regularly blowing one another up. And then you just call in a resupply and a new helldiver drops in and that player begins to control them. <laughs> so it's not like you respawn, you just start controlling yet exactly. another faceless ground. In fact, the default of the game is that your voice changes so you're a different person and there's a bunch of different voices so the idea is just like you're all just like meat for the meat grinder like you're all just getting killed because super earth doesn't care about any of these hell divers they're just completely disposable so over the course of a mission you're just dying and being replaced with some other guy and you just keep going so it is it's like very much not a power fantasy it's like a comedy game about idiot fascist soldiers blowing one another up in a pointless war that's also really, really fun to play and hilarious and then leads to like endless memeable moments. I mean, every mission that I've played has had like three or four things happen that are hilarious. I gather this game is like massive on like TikTok and everywhere where you can just be sharing like dumb videos of hilarious things that happened just because it like just generates that. It's so good. I'm really like amazed by how funny fun and compelling it is there's there's like a battle pass system you can pay but there's also just a free one and i get the sense that they're kind of not like nickel and diming people with microtransactions but the battle pass system is really compelling like i really like unlocking new stuff and like i'm kind of always getting new stratagems or new guns that i can use and, and you're on the free one yeah i'm on the free one and like and i find that like the stuff you start with is super fun like, it's fun from the drop you already have crazy stuff you can call down and then you just will look at what you might unlock at level 10 and be like oh well that looks even cooler like i'll play some more and get that so really especially if you have friends this is a fantastic game i think this is a game that the three of us would have 
have a great time playing together. And um, yeah, especially once they get it working better, um, I can't recommend it enough. Oh, and it has crossplay. You can play with people between PS5 and PC, which is super cool as well. Uh, just like a hell of a game and a real surprise, even though I liked the first one. I didn't see the success of this one coming. Well, the trailer was so generic, and I remember being so disappointed because the first one was like top-down twin stick, and I thought that was cool and different, and then seeing the trailer for Helldivers 2, and it looks like a generic third-person shooter, but sounds like... It's funny, you know, I was a little worried when I watched that trailer, the one with the song about rocking together or whatever, uh-huh. and then it was playing on the Steam channel after I had played a few hours of the game, and I was like cracking up and cackling and loving the trailer, so I think... Yeah, it, I, get, I get what you're saying, even though now I watch that trailer and I'm like, oh, this trailer's perfect. Totally captures the game. Like, game of the year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you don't know it. But anyway, apparently yeah. it didn't, didn't matter. Trailers do not matter. Maddie, what's your one more thing? My one more thing is a book I have only just started reading, but I'm already so into it. And I think everyone should read it. And I didn't expect that at all. I, I just thought it'd be fun and dark. Uh, it's called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, and it's by Naomi Klein, who mm. is an author often confused with the now alt-right reactionary author Naomi Wolf, who originally mm-hmm. was sort of a second-wave feminist writer. People probably know The Beauty Myth as her kind of 90s pop feminism book. And since then, she's really gone down a weird path and now is fully ensconced in Steve Bannon's world of podcasting. And she's super into conspiracy theories about COVID. And Naomi Klein is a leftist and has been the whole time and has been mixed up. Wait, why are they confused? Just because they're both named Naomi? Well, so it's weird. It's very weird because I don't think of their names as being particularly similar, but they do visually look somewhat similar. And they're both Um. authors and they started off both kind of having leftist politics. And so Naomi Klein's book kind of starts just in chronological order with the first time she got mixed up with Naomi Wolf, which happened in 2011 at an Occupy Wall Street protest that she attended, where she literally overhears other women talking in the bathroom about something that Naomi Klein said that was totally out of touch. I see. So this book, Doppelganger, is specifically <laughs> yes. about the thing that the mix right. up between these two. I, okay, okay, okay. It's about I thought you were just like table setting about who Naomi Klein is, but that's what nope. the book is about. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that's what the book's about. And Got it. That is what I thought the whole book would be about, was just Naomi Klein slowly losing her mind over the past 10 years over this really <laughs> weird thing that's been happening to her where this other woman has become just totally weird right-wing conspiracy nut And they both were just authors to begin with who kind of had nominally progressive politics, but now they've completely diverged. And again, I don't consider their names to be that similar, but somehow this has just become a thing in Naomi Klein's life. And she talks about how it happened and how weird it is. And I was like, I'm down to just read a book about how weird that is. But the book is actually (laughs) significantly cooler than that because it ends up being about how easy it is for this to happen and how eventually it became such a joke on Twitter that they were confusable, that people would actually like get autocomplete Naomi Klein if they were trying to at Naomi Wolf and vice versa because of just the way that Twitter oh, works. And so they were intrinsically linked forever, basically, because people started making jokes about them. And that just became something that Naomi Klein had to deal with and Naomi Wolf, presumably, for 
however many years it's been. And so in some ways, it's sort of a very personal raw book about Naomi Klein going kind of crazy and listening to Steve Bannon's podcast a lot and alienating her friends and family because she's so obsessed with this person that she's mistaken for. And she's like, I hate <laughs> this person's politics, but everyone thinks I'm her. And I don't know why this is happening to me, which would have been a book on its own, maybe. But then it also becomes her talking about how much the internet and personal brands and technology have changed to allow this to happen to other people all the time, whereby all of us kind of have people who have similar names to us on the internet that we're aware of, or at least I know I do. There's many other Maddie Myerses out there and other Maddies that I've been mistaken for all the time. That's just a rote thing that happens to us. But because of that, and because of the way that personal branding works online, all of us have to constantly find new ways to distinguish ourselves. And it just, mm. it's ended up being this really weird, cool book about AI art of people and kind of fake versions of people and how much fakery is a part of internet identity. And I don't even know how to explain what the book is now, but every every chapter I'm like learning something new and thinking about the internet in a different way and also thinking about the way I market my own writing and the idea of my personal brand and who am I. And I don't know, it's really taken me on a weird trip. So <laughs> Does she really talk to Naomi Wolf? I don't know. I haven't finished the book, but I hope so. I mean, they, they have yeah. talked on the internet quite a bit because they're constantly mistaken for each other. So in that sense, mm. they know each other quite well. But it's so weird. I don't know. I really recommend it. So it's called Doppelganger, and it's by Naomi Klein. <laughs> but nice. I guess if you look for Doppelganger by Naomi Wolf, you might still find it. I don't know. <laughs> um, my one more thing is a book as well. It's a book called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect by Benjamin Stevenson. And it's a sequel to a book that I read, I think, last year or two years ago called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin mm. Stevenson. And this book, like that one, uh, it kind of is narrated by this guy who is constantly breaking the fourth wall and talking about the rules of murder mysteries and how they function and saying stuff like uh, the killer in this book is mentioned by name 106 times, stuff like that. <laughs> nice. Um, and so there's all sorts of kind of uh, hidden riddles and meta text and uh, it, it's it's very cute. It's very entertaining. It can get a little bit much, just like the first book. Um, this one, I would say, I mean, I didn't like it quite as much as the first one because some of the novelty of that stuff is gone, but still very entertaining, still very easy breezy read that I just kind of got through on a plane ride last week. Um, so enjoyed it um, and definitely would recommend it as a kind of just enjoyable little experience. Um, not going to blow your mind or anything, but just a very fun read uh, that, that nice. I enjoyed. And so the, the premise here, of course, is that uh, he's on a train with a bunch of other murder writers, kind of uh, mm. murder fiction writers, mystery fiction writers, and uh Someone gets killed, and maybe the more than one person gets killed, mm. and uh, who's responsible, or who who are the people responsible? Those are the big, the big questions. Um, and then there's a fun little subplot about the narrator and his um, his girlfriend, and the kind of the question of whose story gets told and whose story is this, because she is also a writer, and so there's some kind of interesting ideas there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, didn't blow my mind or anything, but very fun read. Once again, nice. everyone on this train is a suspect. Um, of course, very Agatha Christie uh, yes. of it mm -hmm. all. Good title. Yeah. Very memorable. It is 
It is love memorable. A, I love a well-titled good. murder mystery. Good title. Yeah, good. All right, guys. Kirk, Maddie, it is time for us to say goodbye. It is. It see is. you both next week. Yeah, see you both next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.